Drive with Kurt and Anthony on FM 96.3 and AM 620. WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here. And joining us in studio now is Chris Bradley. He is the president of the Vermont Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Kurt. How are you doing, sir? Good. And uh, first of all, for listening audience who might not know, tell us what the Vermont Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs is. What what well, is it all? Um, the Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs was established in 1875. Uh, we formed at a time specifically because there was uh, no white-tailed deer in Vermont. Uh, so uh, uh, we got together, uh, rectified that problem, and in fact, uh, the earlier uh, organization was pivotal in establishing uh, Vermont uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife. So we work very closely with Fish and Wildlife, uh, very interested in uh, uh, rules problem promulgation and that sort of thing. So uh, yes, uh, we've, uh, of course, as a uh, Fish and Wildlife organization, we also uh, uh, represent uh, gun ownership. So I know that's a contentious issue, but uh, we're proud gun owners, and it's a proud tradition. So there were no white-tailed deer in 1875 in Vermont? Believe it or not, there were not. So we've been successful at reintroducing them, uh, as well as other. I mean, if you look around, Fish and Wildlife is just doing an amazing job. Every one of our game species is abundant and flourishing, and that's a direct relationship to what the uh, experts and specialists of Fish and Wildlife as well as the, uh, the composition of the Fish and Wildlife Board. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the relationship between the two. Um, we have some very competent people, uh, one person from every uh, county on that board, and they do a really good job. And the proof is abundant and flourishing. That's great. Now, Chris, uh, on behalf of uh, the advocacy that you do in the Capitol in regard to the legislature and representing gun owners, um, we, there was a bill this, this session that passed. Uh, that the governor let go into law without his signature, didn't necessarily support it, but opted not to veto it. Um, And that established, I guess it increased the waiting period for gun purchases from 24 to 72 hours. It also has some safe storage uh, parts components to it. Uh, Anything else in that bill that you want to mention? And I know you are now challenging that in court. Uh, well, there were three primary sections to H-230. And, you know, as we address H-230, let's, let's be candid. It was an attempt to address suicide. And suicide is a huge problem in the state. And as we know, um, most suicides are related to firearms. Um, the, the issue there, well, so we had three sections. Uh, one was started out as safe storage, uh, meaning uh, you have to take care of your firearms. That's something we absolutely believe in. Uh, but with the Heller decision um, uh, back in 2008, it was made very clear that uh, as a firearms owner, no law could prevent you from being able to defend yourself in your home. So a Washington, D.C. law that required you to have your firearm uh, unloaded, disassembled, and locked up was struck down by the Supreme Court because it defeated the whole intent, the core of the Second Amendment, which is self-defense. Uh, the second part of the bill was an extension of the extreme risk protection order. Um, when the extreme risk protection order was uh, brought out. Uh, what, are, what are commonly referred to as red flag laws. Uh, red flag, yes. Uh, ERPOs, red flag laws. Uh, basically, uh, we absolutely agreed that there are people that should not have firearms. So if we can agree on that common ground, all we need to do is wrap um, suitable protections around it to protect everybody. Um, uh, the actual 
changed that law. Uh, pre- currently, uh, district attorneys or state's attorneys um, are approached for, hey, somebody's, gee, Kurt's acting out. We're a little bit worried about him. So it's a district attorney or state's attorney that starts that extremist protection order process. Um, and interestingly enough, they do it based on a preponderance of the evidence, which is a feather hitting an even scale one side or the other, which is a pretty low bar. bar. Um, what they wanted to do is expand that to allow for household members um, as well as uh, family members to be able to uh, initiate an extremist protection order. Right now, who, right now, how's it done? Well, actually, right now, anybody can approach a district attorney or state's attorney, a family member, a, a shopkeeper, your neighbor. Under uh, current law. Under current without law. Without this new legislation. Without this new legislation. So what uh, the legislation did was say, okay, family members and household members, which, by the way, are probably in the best situation to be able to see someone who's in crisis, someone who's in trouble. Um, the, the issue becomes is nothing prevented them currently. So... Uh, what we have concerns about was the standard of evidence. Um, well, there's another concern about due process down the road, but let's just focus on uh, standard of evidence. Preponderance is far too low when you're talking about removing somebody's rights. Uh, clear and convincing is, is a much more suitable standard in our opinion. Uh, the final portion was the waiting period, as you pointed out. Um, we don't have a waiting period currently, um, so we went from essentially no waiting period uh, to a 72-hour waiting period. Um, if, by chance, you recall the uh, Brady uh, background check law, the entire purpose of Brady and establishing an instant check background system was to negate the need for any waiting periods. So now we have this instant check background system. It's in place. It's working. And now we're turning around and saying, oh, we still need a waiting period. Um, ostensibly, that is to... Uh, if someone's in crisis, we want to prevent them from going out and being able to buy what amounts to lethal means. Um, and, and that's a noble attempt. Um, I have to say there are many ways to uh, do themselves, someone to do themselves in. And, and in point of fact, um, suicide has probably touched everybody in this state in some way or another. So we absolutely get that. Um, so, And we do promote safe storage. Um, however, just don't tell us that things have to be locked up. Uh, the way the safe storage was changed was changed in negligent storage. So if by chance you don't store your firearm properly and uh, a uh, prohibited person or a child gets a hold of it um, and then does something bad, then there's recourse. Um, that parallels New Hampshire and uh, Maine's law, which is, uh, I think, on point. Um, the waiting period didn't change at all from when it left the House through the Senate. It was never touched. Um, and that, unfortunately, is just not going to stand the test of Bruin, which I'm sure you're going to want to talk about. Were you surprised that the governor didn't veto it, that let, he had made some noise that he didn't support it? Were you surprised that he didn't veto that bill? Um, yes. Uh, we were we were surprised and a bit disappointed. Um However, the message he sent was quite powerful. He acknowledged that he thought it was unconstitutional, uh, but at the same time said that uh, the courts will figure this out. So um, I guess we're going to pursue that course of action to see uh, where the courts stand on this. We're talking to Chris Bradley. He's the president of the Vermont Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs. And and, uh, if you have a question for him, we're talking about the gun bill uh, and gun legislation generally in Vermont. If you have a question for Chris, give us a call on the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888 414 
Um, so you're, you have problems with all three sections of the bill with the, with the waiting period, with the expansion of the extreme risk protection order or red flag laws, as they call them, as well as the storage. Um, I, we came to an understanding on, uh, the negligent storage. Um, that is something, uh, frankly, if, if that situation happened, there's probably bigger civil suits happening as a result than anything the state might be able to do. Um, waiting periods, uh, excuse me, uh, the extremist protection order, again, uh, I think we can all can agree that there are people that shouldn't have guns. Um, that said, there should be a standard of evidence suitable for removing somebody's rights. Um, and frankly, uh, the waiting period, if we, you really have to take a look at what's happening with the Supreme Court. Um, ever since Heller decision, followed by the McDonald decision, followed by the Catano decision, and ultimately last year's decision in Bruin. Um, and this is going to be a very difficult thing for inferior courts to wrestle with. Um, uh, Supreme Court, I think, has made it pretty clear. So, uh, yes, we we do have a problem with uh, specifically the waiting periods. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes, good morning. First, I'll start by saying this is just all so sad that it has to happen. It's going to be such a waste of resources, both on the state level and on the other side. Both sides are going to spend a lot of money on this needlessly. I wish the governor vetoed it because, you know, my rep is a Democrat who voted against it. I mean, he can read and comprehend the Constitution. So I think that this would have been one veto that had a good chance of being upheld had Scott vetoed it. But the other question is on funding. Um, you know, I sent a donation within minutes of getting the email on this case, and uh, I'm just wondering how how is the funding going? Are you getting any help from Second Amendment Foundation, GOA, et cetera? Any money from out of state going to help with this? Well, um, I guess I, I take a look at this and say, to answer directly your question, at this point we have not approached either the NRA, ILA, the Second Amendment Foundation, or the Gun Owners of Vermont excuse me, of America. Um, those are available uh, sources. But honestly, I'd really like to see this funded entirely by Vermonters. Uh, when I start to think, uh, how are we going to get to what we believe is a $300,000 nut to crack? Um, I look at this and say, are there 300 Vermonters that believe enough in their rights to donate a 1000 apiece? Um, I, I stepped right up and did that. And I know others that are going to. Or do we have 600 people that will donate five, or 1,200 people that will do 12 the 250? So uh, we have had a good outturn, uh, outpouring uh, since we announced last Tuesday. Um, yes, it's a tough nut, and, and frankly, uh, I'd honestly like to see. We, we've got over 50,000 hunters in the state. If if just half of them said, you know, my rights are worth something, um, five dollars, ten dollars, we will beat this easily. Um, Honestly, it's a matter of, of reaching the people and saying, hey, who have you helped? Who have you donated to to protect your rights for this year or last year or the year before? Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yeah, hi. I guess I just, you know, I wish to uh, like to address the uh, idea that if I'm already a firearms owner, what's the logic of me having to go through a waiting period. I didn't know if that was addressed in the legislature and if the, uh, if the guests could just talk about that a little bit. Well, actually, uh, there was an earlier case in California where that specific point became quite pivotal 
in a district court of Southern Cali- uh, Northern California, which actually the federal court did say, hey, they're right. This is uh, unconstitutional. Unfortunately, then went to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the Ninth Circuit has interesting views on the uh, Second Amendment, and they've been wrong repeatedly. So uh, that's going to uh, change, and it is already in the process of being changed. Um, so, uh, yes, you, 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 it's a very valid point. When we have a law st- ostensibly um, uh, attempting to stop people from accessing lethal means, what is the point when I, as a firearm owner, already have lethal means? And, and actually, something very sad in this whole legislative process um, because I listened to the entire testimony in healthcare, I listened to the entire testimony and was testifying in Senate Judiciary and House Judiciary. As far as active testimony, there was only two cases brought forth in active testimony where somebody went out, purchased a firearm, went home, and immediately killed themselves. Now we know there's probably more than that, but the fact of the matter is a very small percentage. So there is no, there is no rationale for denying an existing gun owner any delay at all is it do you feel though chris that it's um i hate to put it this way but some would say like a loss of any life is worth changing the law if it saves anybody's life because i know they talk about sometimes with suicide it's an impulsive thing right especially with young people if you wait a day or two they you know maybe they don't do that um is that worth would you call it an inconvenience of 72 hours or is it, or is it more than an inconvenience? Well, uh, let's look at the core of the second amendment. Uh, I think we have to realize that, that people are willful. Um, they are going to act on impulsive things, but frankly, uh, my understanding of suicide is it, minutes. You make a decision in minutes. Um, when you go to a gun store and plan to go to a gun store and then select a firearm and, and uh, mask your inner turmoil and crisis to purchase that firearm. Uh, and by the way, FFLs are very sharp. They're a very good read on people. Um, and they don't have to sell a gun to anybody. In fact, the, you don't like the shirt you're wearing? No, sorry. I, so, uh, no, they're not psychologists, but uh, they have a very good read on people and they have a, a mountain of regulations that they have to follow. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question about the safe storage part of this bill. Um, hypothetically, if I, my house was to get broken into, um, majority of my guns are in a gun safe, but I keep one ready for self-defense. If somebody breaks in my house and steals that gun, am I responsible because it wasn't in the safe? No. Um, uh, illegal entry um, is exempt. I mean, they do make provisions. This is basically to try to keep uh, law-abiding, honest citizens who own firearms cognizant of where those firearms are and the risk that they can impose on either someone who shouldn't be in their house. Um, uh, right. Uh, uh, now, does that hold true for a vehicle also, if your vehicle is locked? Uh, vehicles are out exempted from this. This is uh, premises only. And okay. when when would it come into play, Chris, in terms of, no, nobody's going to come into your house, despite this law, if this law was even upheld. Nobody's going to come into your house right from the state and say, hey, we need to check and make sure your guns are being properly stored. So when would the law come into play? When could it come into play? Well, it's really after the fact. Uh, there is no, somebody's going to come into your house and check to see how things are stored. Um, it's going to be after the fact when something bad has happened. And if, 
for instance, a child gets a hold of a firearm and uses it in crime or a threatening manner, then the gun owner it can be liable for a misdemeanor. Um, if that child uses that firearm to kill um, or, or injure, then we have a, a different story, and that's a felony on the gun owner. That'd be a felony on the gun owner if, for example, a a teenage child took the gun, it wasn't being properly stored, and went out and shot someone. Yes. I mean, a, a good example of that would be a neighborhood. You, you have kids. A neighborhood kid comes over to your house, starts investigating, finds a firearm in a, in a closed drawer or something, and then does something with it. I wonder so, how you'd ever prove that it was not properly stored. Well, that's a very interesting point. There's a lot of uh, caveats here. For instance, uh, gee, if you have a youth who wants to go out hunting, um, well, gee, how did he get that firearm? Was there real permission given? Um, and did that have to be a written permission? Um, well, the, the youth does have, he's gone through hunter safety. He can, he can hunt with that gun. No, go ahead. You had, uh, um, you talked to a caller asked you about money and said he had donated. And you mentioned if every hunter gave, uh, five bucks or whatever, how much do you need to raise in regard to this lawsuit? Is there a figure that you've been told that you're really going to need to put to, to have to? Well, I, I have to be somewhat circumspect um, because I'm sure uh, our legal team is listening and I really can't get into too much on the, on the case. Um, we have been uh, quoted a number of 300000 to get it through a decision in the Second Circuit. So we intend to file. We have not filed yet. There will be a press release when we do that. Um, we're going to file in federal district court in Vermont and uh, then on to the Second Circuit if it's needed. All right, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hi, my question is in reference to when someone steals a firearm and you get a felony because the crime they committed, once you have that felony and you didn't commit the crime, that means you can no longer own any guns? Um, if I understand your example, you own a firearm, if somebody uh, obtains it illegally um, and then does something bad with it, is that the uh, example? Oh, he's he's not with us, but I think with with this current law, this new change in in this law, if it wasn't properly stored in your house and they broke in and stole it and then did something harmful with it, well, breaking in again is is exempted. This would be somebody uh, uh, a a neighborhood child coming gotcha. in uh, that, and, and actually there was a case in Barry recently that you may or may not have heard about, which was uh, very tragic. Um, but yes, that felony would be on your record for failing to safely store your firearm. But if somebody, as you said, if somebody breaks in your house, steals your gun, it wasn't properly stored, they steal it and go out and commit a crime, they're then not. That, you're not liable for it. You're because... not liable for that. Okay. All right, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yeah, good morning. Um, I was wondering on the 72-hour thing pertaining to gun shows and other sales, Is there was there any cutouts for, like, um, CNR uh Guns, you know, antiques, uh, curios, and relics, uh, maybe rifles and shotguns exempted, and maybe it just applies to pistols. Is, is there anything like that? Because if there isn't, it's going to kill all the gun shows in the state because, you know, how people come from 100 miles to go to Barry and the seller comes from 100 miles the other direction, and you can't just consummate a sale like that, even after you've gone through the mix check. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, there's a lot of misunderstandings about gun shows. Some people think they're relatively just, you know, anything goes bazaars. Um, that, that's simply not the case. Um, uh, yes, we uh, do have a carve-out for gun shows. Um, the law itself for a person-to-person -person transfer 
became effective July 1 of this year. However, um, because of the impact on gun shows, um, the uh, background check requirement, or the waiting period requirement, excuse me, uh, for gun shows uh, was extended to July 1st of 2024. Um, that was specifically something we fought for uh, that allows the Barry Gun Show to have a one more year, the uh, Lamoille Valley Gun Show, um, Yankee Sportsman's Classic, Rutland Shows. Um, so we have essentially a year. So th- you're right, it's, it's going to kill uh, the Barry Gun Show as an example. That brings a lot of money for the local economy. Um, it, it's a it's a social event for many people. They can see friends they haven't seen for a long time. Um, Chris, just a few minutes left uh, on the on, on this debate on the House floor in the legislature. Um, the Bruin decision was mentioned uh, by opponents of the bill, and, and I think even acknowledged by some of the supporters that that they didn't know how this would go in regard to the Bruin decision and its effect on it. And the governor, of course, has mentioned it. Um, can you give us a quick synopsis of the Bruin decision and how you think it will impact this court case? Well, um, you, you actually, the Bruin decision is, was not new. Um, well, it's a new decision in 22, but it was really based solidly on the Heller decision. So you really need to understand the Heller decision. Um, and basically, it was a new way of taking a look at rights and the fact that inferior courts, lower courts, had continually looked at the Second Amendment as an, a second-class right. Um, I'll give you an example, and we're on a, a First Amendment uh, show right here. Um, Kurt, you can say anything you want to say, but you have to wait three days to say it. And there's a reason for that, because we want you to not offend people and think about what you're going to say. Um, Martin Luther King, a right delayed is a right denied. Um, we can talk about someone who's in crisis who wants to hurt themselves, but what about the person who is in fear for their life? who is being stalked by somebody. And, and there's violence all around us. And, and I dare say that the law-abiding gun owners are not causing that violence. So uh, I, I, forgive me, I think I went off from your question. Uh, um, there was a great Florida b- debate. Uh, in essence, if we take a look at the Heller and Bruin decision, um, the new way to take a look at the Second Amendment is if you have an existing law or a new law, that impacts the core of the Second Amendment, which is self-defense, then that law, according to the Supreme Court, is presumptively unconstitutional unless the government can prove that there's an analogous law. And, and frankly, for waiting periods, for magazine bans, for assault weapons bans, for due process violations in ERPO and domestic violence, not going to pass muster. We're just about out of time, Chris. Quickly, um, how long do you expect this court case to take? Any idea? It's going to probably take a while, right? Well, it's it, it, very likely. Uh, federal court is going to move hopefully a little bit faster than, than uh, other courts, and then we can get to the Second Circuit. There is already challenges in both Colorado and California on the waiting period. Um, so uh, I would suspect that within a year, uh, we should be seeing some good movement. 